you ever been in a situation in your life where you were in real need? You're in a situation where you could not help yourself, and someone stepped into your situation, stepped into your troubles, and helped you. Have you ever experienced that in your life before? Me too. Tell you a story. I've shared this story before. This is probably about 10 years ago. But I was uh, on I-24 going through Chattanooga. I can't remember where I was headed. But I'm going. It's probably about midday. Um, I, I, I start, I'm coming down the freeway, and a tire goes out. And, you know, that's an unnerving feeling if you ever had that experience. And you're, you know, trying to keep it on the road. And so, thankfully, I was right at this spot where the Central Avenue exit is. So I was able to kind of limp over to the side and get on that exit ramp and kind of circle around there, and then I'm done. I'm at a stop. And about that time, it started to rain. That's also not the best part of town. There are worse parts of town to be in, but it's not the greatest part of town. And so I'm just sitting there to myself. I'm just kind of paused there, and I just, I just ask, Lord, what am I going to do? What, what do I do? You know, I'm not used to this. So I get out, and I'm kind of fumbling around, and I'd not, on that vehicle, I'd never changed a tire on that vehicle, and, and I realized, you know, pretty quickly, I bought it used, and uh, most of you would probably would have checked this at some point, but I discover in this moment that I didn't have uh, the right tools that I needed. I didn't have a jack in there. There's a missing jack in there. And so I'm sitting there, and I'm like, what? What am I going to do? And all of a sudden, I see this, this Ford King Ranch, big old nice truck, pull up right behind me. And I'm like, oh, what's happening here? And, I, you know, the door opens, and this pair of ostrich-skin boots steps out of the, the driver's side. Tight Wrangler jeans, real nice fancy shirt, some gray hair. Looked like he, like, came out of the movies or something, some sort of a Western, and a big old handlebar mustache. Real fancy, sharp-looking guy. And he steps out, and he walks up, and he says, you having a little trouble? I said, yeah, how'd you guess? Yeah. Uh, this guy doesn't really know how to change a tire. Could you help me out here? And he kind of looked at it for me for a second. He said, you know, I got a tool. And he comes out and he looks and he says, uh, well, you don't have a jack. I don't have a jack. And uh, he said, um, how about I take this over to my shop and I fix it for you? And I'm like, yeah, absolutely. So he gets his tire iron out. He takes the tire off, he picks it up, I mean, he's nice, he's, you know, dressed to the nines, and he's carrying my tire for me, and puts it in the back of his truck, and I get in his big King Ranch with him, we start to pull away, and he said, so, he kind of sounded like Sam Elliott, if you ever met Sam, I mean, seen Sam Elliott on the movies, kind of looked like him too, and he said, so, what do you do for a living? And I kind of smiled, and I said, well, I'm a pastor. And he kind of chuckles to himself, and he says, well, uh, no, no, I said, uh, I said, I'm a pastor. And I said, what do you do? And he said, well, my name's Corky Coker, and I'm the largest tire distributor in North America. And I don't imagine you think this is a coincidence, do you? And I said, absolutely not. <laughs> so he takes me over to his like, he owns like a whole city block. I mean, I needed a tire 
this guy's got a city block full of tires. We pull up to his garage. He bangs on the door. He's got four workers. They open the door. We pull in. They go to work on my tire, fixing everything. He starts walking me around, showing me all the place, all of his antique cars and all this stuff. He spent a couple hours with me, just out of his day. This guy, there's no telling how much he had to do. But he was just became my friend. He stepped into the situation. He allowed himself to be inconvenienced by everything that was happening in my life. Takes me back, puts my tire on, go on my way. And I tell you, even to this day, I just I feel an affection for this guy. Because in my place of need, he stepped in and inconvenienced himself to love me. Now, the question is for each one of us, what would I do in a situation like that? What do I do in the situations in my life whenever I run into someone who is in need? Whenever I see someone who is in a place of need? And I think for most of us, we would like to think that, yeah, I would be somebody that would just, you know, throw off all my plans and I'm going to dive in and I'm going to help somebody. The reality is, is that we know something. We know that love is costly. It's inconvenient. It's often messy. We get busy. We're real concerned about our boundaries, right? That's a big topic. That's a big word in our culture. You know, our culture is always saying, you know, you really need to protect your time. You, you need to make sure that you have really good boundaries in your life that protect you. But here's the reality about love. With love, there's no boundaries. Love throws off boundaries. And sometimes we're just afraid of what is this going to cost. We've been in a series where we're talking, looking at the book of Luke. We're talking about discipleship, which is really about learning the way of Jesus. Learning to follow Jesus with our life. Learning to live our life as Jesus would live our life. So we're learning the way of Jesus. And what we see in our passage is a beautiful picture of the way of Jesus. Here's what we learn in our passage. The way of Jesus is the way of love. And we see that portrayed in a really beautiful picture as Jesus is pursuing a certain man here. So let's jump into our passage. Again, we're in chapter 10, beginning at verse 25. And in this scene, right off the bat in verse 25, we see that this man uh, comes to test Jesus. We learn that he is an expert in the law. And if you're familiar at all with the Gospels, you know this was always happening. The religious people, the religious elites, the, the priests, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the really, really devoted religious people, the, the people who are out, all about God, the very people that you would expect would be waiting on Jesus, would be welcoming Jesus, they were actually the ones who were the most resistant to Jesus. That is a huge thing to get in the Gospels. It's a real shocker. And we see that happening right here as this guy has come. Now, this is an expert in the law. This is a guy that would pour his life, his work, his livelihood is pouring over the law. This guy's an expert in the Bible. And yet here he comes to put Jesus to the test. And we, we learn a lot about he, how he understands God, how he understands what God wants from us, how he understands how we're to approach God. We learn so much Just in the question, the very first question he asked Jesus. Verse 25, look at what he says here. An expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do 
to, inter- to inherit eternal life? You notice something wrong with that question there? You know what he's asking? What is it that I need to do in order to inherit eternal life? What is it I need to do to be accepted by God? You see, in the very question itself, it reveals what he understands about how we approach God, about how we're made right with God, about how we're saved. See, in his mind, the way that we're saved is by doing something. So he's asking here, so what is it that you need to do in order to be saved? That's his basic understanding about approach to God. Now let me just say this right off. That is the basic formula of religion. This is very important to understand because we're right here in the buckle of the Bible belt. A very religious region where everyone would consider themselves religious. And so often, you know what, we, we, we profess Christianity, we know a lot of the right answers, but deep down in our hearts, here's how we basically think it works. I do for God, and therefore I'm saved. And listen, you can never be saved by what you do. We are saved by pure grace. We're saved on the basis, not of what we do, but on the basis of what Jesus has done in our place. That is the heart of the gospel. And it's so easy to miss that in a very religious place, just like he misses it here. So he comes and he says, what do, what do I need to do to be saved? And Jesus brilliantly, and I just want you to notice as we walk through this, how he pursues this man. Jesus doesn't directly answer him. Now, this guy's probably expecting that Jesus, you know, the the religious guys had real concerns because Jesus talked about grace. He talked about radical rescuing grace. He embraced sinners, incredibly broken sinners. We talked about earlier, I mentioned where Jesus one time said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I didn't come for righteous people. I came for broken sinners. That's who he spent his life with. And so the religious people were skeptical of that. They were like, how can you be a holy man and spend so much time with unclean people? If you're really holy, you'd be with us. You'd be avoiding those people. So he probably expects that Jesus is going to respond to this and say, the law, what do you need to do? Don't worry about doing anything. You know, that law is just No need to worry about the law anymore. It's just about grace now. That's probably what he's expecting Jesus to say here. By the way, Jesus never said that. He never said, don't worry about the law anymore. That doesn't matter anymore. So Jesus engages him right where he is. You know, Jesus was just, even in the ways that he he responded to people, he was engaging and pursuing their hearts, just like Jesus does here. And so Jesus responds with a question. He puts it back on this guy. And look at what he says. What is written in the law? Verse 26. How do you read it? So you tell me. I know you're an expert in the law. How do you read the law? Tell me. And so then the guy answers here, and he actually answers the perfect answer. This is actually a way that Jesus himself described the summary of the whole law. Look at what the guy says. Verse 27, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. That's from Deuteronomy. And love your neighbor as yourself. That's from Leviticus. You know, this is a way of summarizing all the law of God. It's essentially about this. All the laws. All the Ten Commandments, 
everything that God has commanded is really about these two things. It's about how to, how to love God with everything that is in you and how to love your neighbor just like you love yourself. He kind of assumes we all love ourselves. That's very natural. I want you to go and love your neighbor in this way. So this guy gives a great answer here. Really does summarize and capture the whole law. And so Jesus responds to him, you've answered correctly. Great job. Do this and you'll live. Jesus puts the weight of the law back on this guy. Now you can just imagine this guy at this point being like, all right, yeah. Wait a minute. Love your neighbor as yourself. Hmm. That sounds a little bit hard. And so he asked this critical question here. He just couldn't resist. And so who's my neighbor? You see, Jesus, as he's put the law back on the guy, the guy starts to get a little uncomfortable. He starts to be a little concerned. Maybe I've not done that like I have. Jesus puts the law on him. This guy's used to putting the law on other people. And who's my neighbor? Really, the guy is trying to ask, who's not my neighbor? Boil it down to me. Let me tell me who I have to love and who I don't have to love. I need to know if I'm right here. Luke actually tells us the reason the guy asked this question is because he wanted to justify himself. What does it mean to justify ourselves? Well, it means to make ourselves right. It's the most natural thing we do in our hearts, to make ourselves right. What do we do whenever we do something wrong or something, somebody calls us on something that we've done wrong? Almost as a natural instinct, what do we do? We justify ourselves. Well, the reason I did that was because of this. I didn't really do anything wrong. If you really understand more of the situation, you'll know why I did that. We did that in our house even this morning. You know, fights in the house. Why did you do that? Well, let me justify myself. It was because of this. We do that very naturally. We justify ourselves in order to make ourselves right. Listen, if you think the way you're made right with God in any way is based on what you do, you are going to justify yourself. You have to. Because the whole system is me making myself right before God. The alternative in the gospel is that He declares me right because of the work of Jesus. But you see, whenever we're under the law in this way, we're going to be justifying ourselves. When we come to the law, we need to really, we, we need to get it down to the very specifics. Tell me where the line is. Tell me exactly who I need to love. Tell me exactly what I need to do. You ever find yourself doing that in life? You're like, I need to know exactly what I can and can't do. I need to know exactly what's right and wrong here. I need to know exactly what to do in this situation. And we get real anxious about things because we're, we're afraid if we don't get it just right, then somehow we're going to be on the wrong side of that law. You see, it's all a way of justifying ourselves. It creates anxiety. But Jesus doesn't directly answer his question. And who is my neighbor? Jesus, again, engages him with a story and tells a story to help him understand what love, the love that God requires is really like. So here he tells this story, and it's just brilliant in the way that it's going after this guy's heart. So here's the story. So a man is going from Jerusalem down to Jericho. Now this was a Jew, and as he's making his way on this path, it was about a seven-mile path from from Jerusalem down to Jericho, it was actually very well known as a very dangerous place to go. It was worse than Central Avenue exit. 
it was probably the next exit up. It's worse than Rossville Boulevard. Okay, now this, this, this is the place that was known for, for getting jumped, for robbers. A lot of people wouldn't go this way by themselves. Uh, just because of the terrain, is very di- dangerous terrain, it was easy for robbers to hide on. And so this guy's making his way down through there, and he gets jumped. He gets beaten, beaten half dead. They strip him naked, take everything he's got, and leave him there for dead. This guy's utterly helpless. And then Jesus says, by chance, so interesting, by chance a priest comes down the path. Now Jesus says that on purpose. Every Hebrew knew nothing happens by chance. It's a way of Jesus saying, God set the whole circumstance up. So a priest is going down the path. Now here's where you're expecting, oh, this guy's in good shape here. Here comes the religious guy, the priest was the kind of top of the heap among religious hierarchy. This is the most holy, the most devoted guy. Hey, this guy's in great shape here. We got the, we got the preacher coming down the path here. This guy's great. This guy's going to step in and help him. I know. That's not what happens, is it? Here comes the priest, and he says, the priest saw him and passed by on the other side. Went out of his way to avoid this man. That's odd. But then here comes a Levite. Now, a Levite's kind of one rung down from the priest. This would have been a a farmer that was from the tribe of Levi, and so they would have volunteered their time for worship in the temple at certain times of the year. This is like a lay leader. Here's your elder. So the pastor failed the test. The pastor avoided the guy in need. But here comes the, the ruling elder. Here comes the lay leader in the church. He's walking down the path. Hey, we're in good shape here. He's going to come in, but... Jesus describes this man as doing the exact same thing. He sees him and passes by on the other side. Let's pause right there and just talk about it for a minute. Why do you think they avoided the man in need? Now, we, Jesus doesn't explicitly tell us, but he wants us to kind of wrestle with that a little bit because that's odd. That's not what you expect to happen in the story. So he wants you to, to get in and say, what's happening here? There's a couple things. One, you got to know a little bit about the background to understand one of the reasons they unlikely avoided this guy. You see, in the Old Testament law, in order to come into worship, you had to be clean. And there were certain things that would make you unclean, that would take you into a place of being impure, so you would have to go through a process of getting pure again. It was a way of teaching God's people, I am holy, and when you come into my presence, you must be holy, you must be set apart. And so they know one of those things in the law is, was if you get near a dead body, then you become ritually unclean. And so you had to go through a process of being cleansed. And so undoubtedly, whenever they see this guy, they're thinking he's dead. What's the difference between a half-dead guy and an all-the-way dead guy from 10 feet away? Nothing. They look the same. <laughs> they're looking at the guy and they're thinking, this guy likely is dead, and if I go over there, this is going to have all kinds of implications. I might not be able to lead worship. I might not be able to go to worship. People might wonder why I'm not in worship. This is going to throw off my whole week. I I don't know what this is going to cost. I don't know what this is going to involve if I go over there. There was even religious reasons that they avoided helping the man, as ironic as that is. 
Another thing, because he had been stripped, they didn't know what tribe he is. They didn't know what kind of man he was. In the ancient world, you knew kind of what tribe you were in, what, what kind of person you were. You knew that, what, what status and class you were in. You knew that by their clothes. It's kind of that way today, too, but especially in this day. So as they're looking at the guy, they don't know if he's a fellow Jew or not. He might be a Samaritan. If it's a Samaritan, they surely shouldn't go help him. I mean, the motion, if you were a Jew and you saw a Samaritan over there, you might go over there and kick him, right? So they, they don't know if he's the right race. They don't know if maybe he did something to get himself in this situation. They don't know if he's a sinner. Like, he, he might be a Jew, but maybe he's a sinner. Maybe he's, he's not a, a holy man. I mean, yeah, he could be another religious guy who I should help, but at the same time, he could, he could just be a sinner. He could have gotten himself into this situation. You can imagine all the things that they're going through in their mind. Here's the thing to see. When you see someone, it creates compassion. We know that just kind of instinctively. And we know that the closer you get to someone in need, the, the, the closer you, you, you draw to someone in need, you know that the risk goes up, doesn't it? And you know that whenever you see someone in a place of trouble, someone in a place where they're, they're suffering and something's happened, you know that to step in is ambiguous. I mean, getting involved in somebody's problem is messy. You know it's costly. You know it's going to be... Well, you don't know what it's going to entail. So what's so natural? It's just to go the other way. It's to avoid it. Do you relate to that in your life? Do you see that happening in your heart? When you see someone in need in your life and you just want to look away and avoid. I I see that in my life. I see it in all kinds of ways, I'm sad to say. Let me just give you one example. I just see this very naturally. You know, you ever on the freeway and you get off at the freeway exit and you, um, you, you come up to the red light there at the freeway exit and the person is sitting there, and this is a lot of places in Chattanooga, I'm sure you've had this experience, person's sitting there at the exit and they're holding a sign, you know, I'm hungry, I'm in need. You know what my instinct is? You know what I do a lot of times? I pull up there, you know, I'm hoping that I don't pull up like right next to them because it's even more awkward. You know what I do? I stare straight ahead because I know if I make eye contact, my heart's going to follow. I'm going to care. I'm going to feel obligated, especially if they see me. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, I don't know. Maybe, maybe this is a scheme. Yeah, right. <laughs> a scheme? There's a lot better ways to make money. Trust me. But I'm thinking that in my heart, and I'm thinking, you know, I don't know, and I, I'm, I've got somewhere to go. I got, I'm, I'm in a hurry. I've got business to tend to, and, and yet I don't know what this will entail. And I, if I stop, you know, I'm holding all those people up behind me, and it's ambiguous. It's messy. What is the easiest thing to do? Not look and to go the other way. You ever find yourself doing that? Thankfully, there's a third person who comes down the path, and he's very different. He's very different. Ironically, he's a Samaritan. Now, here's here's a part where you see the brilliance of Jesus pursuing this man's heart. It's a Samaritan. The hero of the story is a Samaritan. Jews 
hated Samaritans. Samaritans were like half-breeds. They had intermarried with, with uh, Gentiles and pagans. They, they didn't worship in the temple in Jerusalem. They kind of made up their own theology and they're, they're worshiping their own stuff. And, and so they were just hated. They were seen as unclean. A good Jew would not even eat with a Samaritan. They wouldn't even share a utensil with them. They wouldn't even touch them. They wouldn't even go through the land of Samaria. They just avoided them. They hated them. They were prejudiced against them. They were racist against them. And they felt entirely justified in doing it. And yet the hero of the story, the person who steps in to rescue this Jewish man, is a Samaritan. You see how Jesus is pursuing him? So look at what he says that the Samaritan does. Verse 33, But a Samaritan as he traveled came where the man was, and get this, when he saw him, he took pity on him. Do you know that that is a phrase that Luke uses over and over for Jesus? Jesus saw people. And when he saw them, I mean, sometimes it's like in a crowd, and he'll see one person. And his heart will go out to them. Jesus was affected by people. He felt compassion. He saw their situation. He didn't judge them. He didn't avoid them. He didn't say, I'm too busy. He moved towards them. That's what the Samaritan does. He feels compassion. The the priest and the Levite, they saw a problem. The Samaritan sees a person. And so what does that compassion lead him to do? And just look at this picture of love here. That's what Jesus is painting here. He's saying, okay, you want to know about love? Let me just tell you a story that paints the picture of love. And now this is a picture of Jesus' love. What do we learn about love here? Love is messy, always. Look at this description. Look at how much action love involves. He went to him, this is verse 34, he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Love is messy. You think in going and bandaging his wounds, this guy's been beaten half to death. You think he got dirty? You think he got blood on himself? You think this problem got on him? Absolutely. Love is messy. It's willing to step into that messiness. Love is costly. So he's using his his wine, his oil. He's paying the money to take him to an inn and for them to keep him. It's incredibly costly. Love is inconvenient. You know, this Samaritan was going somewhere. But all that shot. You know, if you ever stepped in to help somebody to take their problem on yourself, you know it's incredibly inconvenient. That's part of the reason we avoid it. Because we're busy. We got lots of important stuff to do, right? It's all really pressing. But love is inconvenient. All those plans go out the door, and yet the Samaritan enters in. Love is sacrificial. He gives up his donkey, puts the man on his own donkey. He's now hoofing it. He's going to go and stay with this man. At the end, he's going to pay for it. He's going to sacrifice He's going to let this man into his life. This man's problems now become his problems. Love is commitment and follow through. 
He helps him for the first day. He gets him set up in the end. It would have been so easy for him to say at that point, okay, you good? Done my duty. I'm out of here. But no, he's got to go. He pays for the man to be able to stay there. And he says, I'm coming back for him. Love is committed for the long haul. It's committed to seeing a person move to a place of development, move to a place of health. He's committed for the long haul. He doesn't wash his hands here. He's fully committed to this man. And love is not concerned about tribe. He doesn't ask, wait a minute, is this guy Samaritan like me? Is he like me? Is he in the same political party as me? Is he in the same denomination as me? Is he in the same religion as me? This guy's not. Is he from the same, you know, kind of social class that I'm from? Does he follow the same football team I follow? You know, none of that stuff was a part of his love. In fact, his love was in spite of all of those things. This guy should have been his enemy. In fact, he was his enemy. And yet love defies all those boundaries. You see what Jesus is saying here? This is love. This is what love looks like. Love defies boundaries. Love is costly. Love is giving your life away. Love is making the problems of another person your problems. Love is not, is not about you. It's not saying, what, what, what about me? What is this going to cost me? No, love is about the other person. Love isn't about tribe. See, this is the Jesus way. This is Jesus This is what Jesus' love looks like. And so as as we're learning to be disciples, and we're saying, what is the way of Jesus? You You know what the way of Jesus is? The way of Jesus is love. Costly, sacrificial, self denying love. That's what it means to be a disciple. So let's ask just a few application questions to bring this home. Who in your life is difficult to love? Who in your life do you find it hard to see? We might have people in our life and we're not even seeing them. I mean, we might see them, but we go the other way. We're not seeing their reality. We're not getting in their shoes. That's what love does. Love steps into your shoes. Love says, what must it be like to be you? And that's costly. We don't like to do that because we know our heart's going to get involved when we do that. But who do you not see in your life? Who do you avoid? Who do you keep at a distance? Who do you hold at arm's length? You know, for some of us, for some of us, it might be an actual neighbor. You know, one thing that we got to ask with this is do I, wait a minute, maybe Jesus would include in this category my actual neighbor. Do you know your neighbors? You know, the thing about about neighbors is that neighbors drive you nuts because they're different from you. And they do things different from you. You know, it was once said, you know, we, we pick our friends, right? We choose our friends, but Jesus picks our neighbors. That's why he uses that, right? And even, you know, when, when we get affluent, we start to be able to kind of pick our neighbors. 
You know, that's what gated communities are all about. That's what, you know, getting in, in certain private schools, not entirely about that, but that's a part of it. You know, we want to control our neighbors. We want to make it people like us and people that agree with us. And so we, we get in gated communities and we're like, okay, now I'm picking my neighbors that can be all my friends. But if you live in one of those, you realize Jesus still picks my neighbors. Maybe the same social class, not the same values. Jesus picks our neighbors. Do you love your actual neighbors? Maybe it's one of them that's the most difficult to see and move towards. Maybe it's a coworker. Maybe it's in your own family. Maybe it is your spouse where you cannot see their reality and you hold them at a distance. Here's the challenge. What will you do this week to move towards them in love? It's challenging, isn't it? Love is so very costly. It's so sacrificial. Here's the question. How do we love? This is not natural to me. This kind of love is not something you just muster up. You know, I hope you do go out today and actually try to love people. But you know what you're going to find pretty quick? I need the power to do this. Because willpower won't do it because you're like, I'm going to love, I'm going to love. And then finally they just drive you nuts and you're, rah, you're twice as worse. Then you've really sinned against your neighbor. Right? Where do we get the power to do this? How do I love? in a way that gives myself away. And hopefully, if you've been around, you know the answer. It is only as you experience the love of Jesus for you. It's got to get real. I mean, it's got to move you. It's got to melt your heart. It's got to transform you. I mean, are you just, are you just basking in Jesus' undeserved love for you? Until you do, you're never going to love in this way. It's amazing. You know what most commentators say about this? Jesus is the real good Samaritan. That's what the passage is trying to show. That's what Jesus is trying to show. The Samaritan standing before him. It's Jesus. And just think about the way that Jesus sets it up. You know, the guy said... Who is my neighbor? And at the end of the story, Jesus said, Now which one was a neighbor to him? You see what he's inviting the guy to do? He's inviting the guy to put himself in the gutter where he's got to depend on a person that should not love him for any reason to stoop down and show him mercy. He's inviting the man to himself. See, Jesus is the good Samaritan. The Scriptures tell us we, by nature, are dead in our sin. Utterly able to respond in any saving way to God. We have gone our own way, and we are so incredibly broken because of our sin. We're in the gutter, morally, before God. And you know what? He saw us from a great distance. And His heart was moved in compassion for you. And he chose to get involved and to come down our path and to stoop down into our gutter and to rescue us out at great cost to himself, his very own life. You see the gospel here? 
You see that Jesus is the real Samaritan? We should be his enemy. And yet, he has loved us with the most reckless, self-denying love we could ever imagine. You got to experience his love for you. This morning, we're going to get to come to the table, and that's what communion is about. It's about inviting you into an experience of his love for you, an experience of the gospel. The heart of communion is the broken bread that represents his body and the wine that represents his blood. It's pointing us back to the gospel. If you're asking, does Jesus really love me at my worst, look at the table, look at the cross. His blood was shed for you. And as we come to the table, we're reminded of that. We're brought back to that. We're we're invited into an experience of His love that we might be energized to move out in love together. So as we come to the table, let's begin just by confessing our need. Confessing how by nature, I'm in the gutter. I'm in the gutter. My heart's in the moral gutter. So that's what we do in confession. Let's confess our sins together and prepare our hearts to come receive His grace at the table. We're going to pull up a prayer of confession here. Just invite you to pray this along with me out loud. And I just want to encourage you, let's not just read this. Make this our prayer before Him, confessing our incredible need of His grace. Let's pray together. Merciful God, we confess that we have not loved You with our whole heart, We have failed to be an obedient church. We have not done your will. We have broken your law. We have rebelled against your love. We have not loved our neighbors, and we have refused to hear the cry of the needy. Forgive us, we pray. Free us for joyful obedience through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now take a few moments to confess silently your sin to the Lord. Lord Jesus, we just confess our outrageous need of your grace this morning. We are so desperate, moment by moment, by your rescuing grace, even more desperate than we even realize. And yet your love is overflowing and abounding, greater always than our sin. Would you help us to rest ourselves in the power of of your cross, that we would rest ourselves in your finished work and in your grace, and that that would free us for joyful obedience. Would you now set apart the elements at this table for a holy use that you would minister the gospel to our hearts? In Christ's name we pray, amen. Now hear these words of assurance, an assurance of pardon from the book of Hebrews. By one sacrifice... He has made perfect forever those who are being made holy.
Amen. Now, as we come to communion, one of the things that we start always by saying is that communion is for those who are in union with Christ. And so if you are not a follower of Jesus, if you're not a disciple, or if you're unsure of where you are with Jesus, Scripture is very clear you should not take communion. It would be going through the motions of something that's very holy. Scripture says this meal is holy. And so it warns us against that. It's going through the motions of something that's not real. And so Scripture says you should not take unless you've first been united to Him. If you're in that situation, I would love to talk about, with you about being united with Christ. And I hope you are experiencing Him inviting you to Himself. I would love to have that conversation afterwards. If you wish not to take communion this morning for any reason, you may remain seated and just sing. So We'll have a number of songs and worship there. Consider the passage that we've looked at. You may even come forward and kneel and be prayed for. If you want to be prayed for and not receive communion, just put your hands down like this and it'll let the elders know, hey, I just want to be prayed for. I don't want to receive communion. Um, we would love to pray for you. But if you are in union with Christ and you sense your need of His grace this morning, He invites you to come and to feast upon Him by faith. On the night in which He was betrayed, Jesus took bread at the table and He broke it and He said, this is my body which is broken for you. Take and eat from it, all of you. In like manner, after the supper, He took the cup and He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for the forgiveness of your sins. Take and drink from it, all of you. For as often as we eat of this bread and we drink of this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. So followers of Jesus, we invite you to come and feast upon your Savior by faith.